The Eagle and Child, Episode 17. Mere Christianity, Book 3, Chapter 5, Sexual Morality. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week my friend Matt and I share a beer, and we discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today we're talking about sexual morality. Now, part of me can't quite understand why we're talking about this, since, as every right-thinking person knows, babies are delivered by the stork. But either way, I'm still joined, as usual, by my co-host, Matt. Yeah, your co-host who's not convinced of that point yet. Hey, the movie Dumbo would not lie to me. And we've already talked about the maternity hospital by the 805. Yeah, there's a statue of a stork in the corner. These are medical people. This is science, Matt. I'm, I'm, I'm grinning right now because I haven't seen Dumbo. Oh, good grief. Okay, everyone that knows that we're keeping a track of all the movies that Matt needs to see, we're now going to be adding Dumbo to that list. Turning to Lewis. Let's, let's just move on. Yeah. This, I, I don't know if you're more disappointed in me and believing in the stork, or I'm more disappointed in you for not having seen Dumbo. I think we both just do this podcast highly disappointed in each other, <laughs> but the alcohol gets us through it. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, today we are drinking uh, Johnny Walker Green Label, which is probably my second favorite scotch. But before we get to that, what's our quote of the week? Today's quote comes from Surprise by Joy which was Lewis's sort of autobiography. Joy is not a substitute for sex. Sex is very often a substitute for joy. I sometimes wonder whether all pleasures are not substitutes for joy. I thought that was perfect given we're going to be talking about sexual morality. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh, this one smells less smoky than last week's. Mm -hmm. Yes, this this is certainly less smoky than the Laphroaig. But still more than I'm used to. You're going to have a fully formed beard at the end of all of this. Oh, this one, it's actually lighter on the tongue, mm-hmm. harsher on the back of your throat. Yeah, it's much more full-bodied. It's yes. like a little, this little atom bomb goes off in the back of your throat. It, that's exactly right. I love that feeling. I'm about to start drinking that. <laughs> uh, people might want to go back and listen to our earlier episode about temperance. <laughs> We're doing this temperately. Temporarily at 11.30 a.m., right? <laughs> Tell them what time we're recording this. <laughs> People are going to think this is late at night. Anyway, today we're talking about sex, or more specifically, the virtue of sex, which we call chastity. And probably more than anything else, this is the most misunderstood virtue. Back in episode 14, we looked at the cardinal virtues. And chastity is a virtue just like those, like fortitude or prudence. But it's the virtue that allows us to love rightly. The placement of this couldn't be more perfect either. The last chapter, we were talking about Christian morality and psychoanalysis. Big takeaway, if the, re- if the listeners remember, is this idea that we have this raw material distorting our choices. Well, today we're going to talk about a very specific implementation of that. The way our sexual appetite, our sexual instinct, has been incredibly distorted by external forces to pervert, more or less, a beautiful thing. And Jack begins by making a distinction, first of all, between chastity, on the one hand, and what he calls modesty, or I think a better term, propriety, is on the other. And this was an interesting conversation. 
Yeah, what I would call modesty goes a little deeper than the way that he uses the term. But when I think of propriety, I think a little bit more of cultural norms, what is accepted. He says modesty is basically this social convention. It dictates how much and which parts of the human body can be displayed. And it also tells us what subjects we're allowed to talk about and what words we can use when describing those things. Lewis says that while the rule of chastity is the same for all Christians at all times, the rule of propriety changes. I'll admit when I first read this, it took me a little while to really understand what he was getting at, but this next example made it clearer for me. He says that a girl in the Pacific Isles wearing hardly any clothes, and a Victorian lady completely covered in clothes, may be both equally modest, proper, or decent, according to the standards of their own society, and both, for all we could tell by their dress, might both be equally chaste, or equally unchaste. So now let's look at the virtue of chastity itself. The most unpopular of all the virtues. Absolutely. I mean, the world just looks at this and just scratches its head. And it really shouldn't be. I hope when we go through this, we'll recognize that the, the virtue of chastity is possibly one of the most beautiful ones. And most utterly sensible. Yeah. But the whole idea of this, just to the world, seems utterly preposterous. I mean, impossible even. And in fact, I'd say a lot of people dismiss Christianity almost entirely based on the Christian sexual ethics. Or if they don't, they compartmentalize it. Mm -hmm. they, they literally just ignore that and then accept roughly everything else. And Lewis presents us with a choice. He says that we either have to conclude that Christianity is wrong or that our sexual instinct, as it now currently is, that our sexual instinct has gone wrong. It's either one or the other. And he says, well, as a Christian, I clearly think that the sexual instinct's gone wrong. But he says that's not the only reason that he thinks it's gone wrong. Jack appeals to pure reason, and he explains that the sex instinct must, by necessity, be moderated. He said that if a young man indulged his sexual passion whenever he felt inclined, and if each of those acts produced a baby, then in no time he would end up populating an entire village. We must recognize that this sexual appetite is a ludicrous and preposterous excess of its function. Lewis gives the example of somebody, someone might eat too much food. They might, say, eat enough food for two people, but not 10 or 20. Yeah. Whereas the sexual instinct, as he says, is just at the other end of the spectrum. The analogy he uses to explain all of this, that's brilliant, is comparing it to food. He starts by looking at the sex instinct and the eating instinct. And notice that the eating instinct, it's to nourish us. It's not to overindulge in it. And the sex instinct is for biological purposes for children, which I'm going to go way back to the introduction. Remember when we talked about the issue of contraceptives? It was right here where I thought he might be in line with that because he says sex is for biological, the biological purpose of sex is for procreation. Mm. It's not to say that it can be purely reduced to that. Yes. But if you're looking for its ultimate purpose, yeah. babies are a very obvious consequence of it. As he's connecting this to the eating instinct, he uses an example of a striptease that I thought was a really unique way to hit this point home, but it's so absurd, it does the job very well. He says, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act, that is, to watch a girl undress on the stage. Now suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by simply bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop 
or bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country, something had gone wrong with the appetite of food? It is an absurd image. It is. But then when you take a step back and you think about it, it's what we're doing. Yeah. I mean, now strip clubs are something very normalized. I particularly remember when I first moved to San Diego, I remember being stunned the number of, of strip clubs that I walked past. And I've worked at companies where it wasn't unusual for the Friday or Saturday night. It would be concluded with a trip to the so-called Gentleman's Club, which, as a sidebar, is the most insane name for these establishments. There's nothing gentlemanly about it. Yeah, there's not an awful lot of gentlemanly behavior going on there. It's like, no. are you opening doors for ladies? I don't get it. Yeah. No, it's, it's a place for sweaty, lonely men to feel sexually aroused by paying women to take off their clothes in front of them and pretend that they're into him. That is just as ridiculous as Lewis's example of the meat on the plate, or as I like to call it, the steak tease. <laughs> Very clever, David. Thank you. <laughs> the steak tease. It could be easy to think if you're at this country and you're seeing this, man, these people must be really starved. Mm -hmm. That would be one possible explanation for this. In response to this, Jack says, okay, let's see if this is true. We need to test this hypothesis. So in the case of the steak tease, we need to look around and see, is there an absence of food in the country? Is it starvation that is causing people to be titillated by a piece of bacon or a piece of steak on a plate? And if there is a profusion of food everywhere, then we can't say that it's due to starvation. So what about the striptease? This is what Lewis says. We should have to look for evidence that there is in fact more sexual abstinence in our age than in those ages when things like the striptease were unknown. But surely there is no such evidence. I wonder about that. And not whether, I think it is probably safe to say that we indulge it more than we ever have due to media and Hollywood. But I wonder to what degree. Because back then, maybe it just wasn't talked about as much. Or it was hushed-hushed much but, more. But surely that's the point. Pornography, strip clubs, this is mainstream. This is normal. Yeah. And I'm using normal in very big air quotes there. Yeah. You can get it on command, mm. more or less. And he makes the point that contraceptives have made sexual indulgence far less costly, uh, both within marriage and outside. And public opinion is less hostile to illicit unions and even to perversion than it has been since pagan times. I think it's safe to conclude from all of this that our sexual desire, our sexual practice is not from deprivation. No. Can we look around the country and see that there is a complete absence of sex and sexual titillation? Particularly in America, there is not an absence of that. It is everywhere. In TV, books, and movies. On billboards by the side of the road. And Lewis points out, Starving men may think much about food, but so do gluttons. The gorged, as well as the famished, like titillations. And today, the sexual instinct is definitely not starved or oppressed. And I'd say quite opposite, in fact. We have become gluttons. So how do we get into this mess? Well, according to Lewis, it's for the last 20 years, we've been fed all day long good, solid lies about sex. And remember, he wrote this in 1943. I suggest that this has continued for the 75 years since then, and it's escalated, it's got far, far worse. The lie we've been told is this idea that sex is nothing to be ashamed of. In like every great lie, it always comes from a truth. There's a kernel in there. There's somewhere. always a kernel of truth. It's like a conspiracy theory. Every great conspiracy theory is rooted in a small truth. And that's why it's believable. Like the stalk. Like, 
I was about ready to mechanically respond to that. <laughs> like the stork? No, not like the stork. So what is the truth here, though? Well, sex is a beautiful and healthy thing. The lie is that it's always, no matter what, whenever your desire feels it. In the right context, it's nothing to be ashamed of. But if the, we're, the act itself. The act itself, correct. But some of the ways, many of the ways, were it's been perverted today, we should be ashamed of. It comes back to the idea that we've addressed in previous episodes. When we talk about evil isn't a thing, it's a perversion, a privation, a twisting, a seeking of something in the wrong way, at the wrong time, or to the wrong degree. A beautiful principle from St. Augustine. Everything we do is just a disordered love. Anytime you see someone doing something wrong, they're striving for good, just in the wrong way. And I think the popular opinion with regards to Christianity and sex is that Christianity looks down on sex in some way. But Lewis says that, no, this is ridiculous. Christianity is one of the great religions which thoroughly approves of the body. And he says that Christianity has glorified marriage more than any other religion. He says virtually all of the great poetry and songs about love were written by Christians. As you're saying that, I'm thinking of doing a C.S. Lewis thing here and giving an analogy. It'd be like saying a parent who disciplines their child so that way they can be their fullest potential and reach their full beauty hates children. It's better to be the parent that just lets them run free. That's the same thing with sex. I mean, it's because the Christian faith holds it in such a high esteem. It wants to see it at its true potential that it has these column do's and don'ts, maybe, or these restraints. It's because it loves it. And because it's something so powerful. Archbishop Fulton Sheen said that sex is kind of like a fire. It's wonderful when it's in the hearth, when it's in its right setting, when it's in its right place. You don't want to have that fire in the middle of your living room. <laughs> Bad things happen. Anytime you start something with C.S. Lewis, I get excited, obviously. But Fulton Sheen, mm. He's great. <laughs> but Christianity, and particularly Catholicism, has so much to say on this subject. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, there's the theology of the body. This was the profound work of Pope St. John Paul II. Every week he would have a Wednesday audience when he would give a lecture. And he gave 129 lectures, which later became known as the theology of the body. As he was breaking down, looking at Genesis, Corinthians, and all the other parts of scripture that speak about sex, nuptial union, the body that our bodies have a theology about them. And if you recall past episodes when we spoke about Gnosticism, this is in stark contrast to that. Christianity says that the body is good, that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And that is why the body is something sacred. And that is why the sexual union is something so powerful. Well said. Lewis concludes, if anyone says that sex in itself is bad, Christianity contradicts him at once. But what Lewis would state is bad, and something we can be ashamed of, is our current sexual state, the current sexual instinct and how it's been perverted. He says, I think it is everything to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be ashamed of enjoying your food. There would be everything to be ashamed of if half the world made food the main interest of their lives and spent their time looking at the pictures of food and dribbling and smacking their lips. That's, that's, that's quite an image. <laughs> it's quite an image. But again, going back to what we said earlier, it's absurd, but it's really not. We've done that with sex. So that's the current state of our sexual instinct. Can we be cured? In order to be cured, first we have to want to be cured. 
And you might be thinking, well, of course I want to be cured. Lewis points out that there's a little bit more depth to that statement. And he uses a famous Christian author, referring to St. Augustine, who during his conversion journey, if you read Confessions, was praying to God, saying, Oh Lord, make me chaste. Yet his heart was always adding to the end of that statement. But please don't do it just yet. (laughs) That's the story of all of our lives. I know part of me wants to fix certain things in my life. And the other part of me is like, yeah, tomorrow. So he says that we can be cured, but that we have to want to be cured. But that even then, there are three reasons that make this desiring of chastity difficult. He says that the first is that we secretly think that it's unhealthy. The second reason is that we think it's impossible. And the final reason is that we think it's repressive. So let's look at each of those in turn. So starting with the unhealthy, Lewis says we think this because of the world, the flesh, and Satan. He points out, in the first place are warped natures, the devils who tempted us, and all the contemporary propaganda for lust combined to make us feel that the desires we are resisting are so natural, so healthy, and so reasonable that it's almost perverse and abnormal to resist them. I hear this all the time. How often when you talk about wanting to be chased, do people point out it's so unnatural Mm -hmm. as the argument for why it's wrong. (laughs) And and it stops there usually. But as we were talking about just a moment ago, most good lies are based on a little bit of truth. Yes. Because the sexual instinct is natural. What isn't natural is any sexual act. Like most good lies, it's based on a little bit of truth. The sexual act is good. It is normal. It is healthy. The lie consists in the suggestion that any sexual act to which you are tempted at the moment is also healthy and normal. We'll bring it back to C.S. Lewis's food example. Eating is a great thing. Going to McDonald's every day and indulging your appetite, overeating and eating the worst stuff in the world, no one would say that's good, even though it's a natural desire to want to eat. But there are perversions, there are issues that need to get dealt with, bulimia, anorexia. I seem to recall that there's some medical condition where pregnant women start gnawing on coal. (laughs) Wow. I think I heard Matt Frad mention that once. Yeah. So eating is a good thing, but that doesn't mean that all kinds of eating or not eating are good. Beyond just thinking it's unhealthy, the second thing that stops us from wanting to be cured is we think it's impossible. And if you think anything is impossible before you start, you're going to quit right away. Mm. It reminds me of a G.K. Testerton quote. He says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, has been found difficult and left untried. Oh, that's a good one. It's always nice when we can bring Chesterton into Lewis, because <laughs> they're very related. Jack tries to encourage us to at least try, because in everything we do, whether it's learning to ride a bike, whether it's learning to swim, learning to climb a mountain, you have to begin by trying and believe you can. And an example when I was reading this that I thought of is a four-minute mile. No one had broken the four-minute mile. Then when it was broken, I want to say within a couple years, many people broke a four-minute mile. And it's not that people just magically got faster. It's that they realized they could actually do it. Mm-hmm. And when they believe they can, they did it. Lewis also gives the example of a compulsory question in an exam. You know, if you don't even try, you're going to get no marks. But if it's a compulsory question, if you can't just skip it, it's worth you to at least give it a go. Yeah. And you might get something for it. You mentioned mountain climbing earlier. 
When I first moved to America, I was in Washington, D.C., and I joined a gym that had a mountain climbing wall. I had a fear of heights and didn't like that, so I decided, okay, I'm going to need to go and kick that. But they would have some staff there to belay for you, so they would make sure that you wouldn't you know, fall off and kill yourself. And I remember one time when I was climbing up an overhang, it was near the end of my session. I'd been climbing for like half an hour already. My arms were tired. And uh, I called down to the guy at the floor. Hey, just, just let me down. I, I'm, I'm done. You know what he said? No. He wouldn't let me down. He said, you can do this. And he just kept me there until I actually clambered over. But it took him giving me no alternative to actually finally conquer that overhang. It's important to remember in all of this, though, because we could be making, we could be coming across as if we're making the point, well, you just have to will it, that we still need God's grace and God's help. And Lewis makes that very clear. And Lewis is also very realistic. He knows that this attempt to nurture the virtue of chastity, there are going to be setbacks, there are going to be failures. I remember a quote by Mike Tyson, he says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> So what happens when we fail to live chastely? Lewis gives us very brief advice. After each failure, ask forgiveness, pick yourself up, and try again. It reminds me of Pope Francis. God never tires of forgiving us. We tire of asking for forgiveness. Exactly. And Lewis also says that very often what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. For however important chastity or courage or truthfulness or any other virtue may be, this process, this getting back up again, this process trains us in habits of the soul which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. And the only fatal thing to do is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. Sounds very St. Ignatius, spiritual exercises, that idea he talks a lot about god permitting sin for three reasons and one of them is to help us grow in virtue sometimes when we're struggling with something and here we're talking about chastity but i like how you pointed out courage truthfulness gossip could be another one it's it's to help us turn to god recognize our sinfulness our broken nature get rid of our pride and, and develop strength so we don't pursue chastity because we think it's unhealthy we think it's impossible. What's the third reason? Because we think it's repressive. And I hear this one all the time. And Lewis points out, the problem is we have a misunderstanding of the definition of repressive. We think repressive just means pushing something down. And therefore, that makes it repressive. Well, no, that's not at all what we're talking about here. Repressive, true repression, is where you push something into the subconscious. And when it comes back, it's unrecognizable. And not sexual, typically. Exactly. When we're dealing with chastity, it's very conscious. And in fact, if you do it properly, you're more aware of it. Your knowledge increases of the beauty of it. And so as, it's as, well, as well as its perversions. Yes. He has this wonderful quotation. He says, Those who are seriously attempting chastity are more conscious and soon know a great deal more about their own sexuality than anyone else. They come to know their desires as Wellington knew Napoleon, or as Sherlock Holmes knew Moriarty, or as a rat catcher knows rats, or as a plumber knows about leaky pipes. Pursuing chastity allows us to be mindful. And introspective, to see our impulses very clearly. Yes. He says that virtue, or even the attempt at virtue, 
brings light, brings clarity. Indulgence brings fog, confusion. This reminds me of something I always like to bring up. We've brought it up once or twice before, but it's the idea that I think it's an analogy. You, I thought it was Lewis. I think you point out to me as G.K. Chesterton, where you're on the top of a mountain and there's multi-thousand foot drops and a fence around it allows you to be freer. That's really the same idea here. Chastity is about putting a fence around the sexual desire so it reaches its full potential and its full beauty. So this has been a rather long episode, mainly because Lewis's content here has been fascinating and a lot of important topics needed to be discussed. But before we close out, there's a real danger that you might think that Christian morality centers on sex. But Jack says that's just not the case. The center of Christian morality is found elsewhere. And we're going to look at that in later chapters. Jack makes a statement that you might think that sexual morality, sexual sin, is the worst sin of it all. And unfortunately, if you meet Christians today, you might get that impression too. But he makes a pretty bold statement that the sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. Yeah, he says that within ourselves, competing with the human self, there is the animal self and the diabolical self. The animal self wants us to behave like an animal, but the diabolical self wants us to behave like a demon. And that one is far worse. He says, this is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. Classic Lewis ending. (laughs) And of course, it's better to be neither. Like last week, where we talked about judgment, and that really pierced me, this one did the same. So much today, Christians focus on the sins of the flesh. Which is important. And it is important, exactly. And we can't belittle it. As he says, it's better to be neither. But we also need to focus on the sins of the Spirit, especially in our own selves. I think that's a good place to stop, because next week we're going to be looking at a related topic of Christian marriage. As usual, my outline will be in the show notes. Please like, share, and subscribe. Seriously, sharing us with a friend is probably the best compliment you could ever give us. The quote of the week will be going up on Instagram shortly. You can still contact us on restlesspilgrim.net, tweet us at Pints with Jack, and we'll see you next week when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>